The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China's Communist Party turns 100 this week. Plus, Wall Street enlists individual investors to help price initial stock offerings. Stay tuned for this week's edition of The Views Room. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary wing of Reuters News, coming to you from Europe. A century ago this week, the Chinese Communist Party was founded in Shanghai's French concession. Now, the institution which brought the world such revolutionaries as Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping has never been so popular at home or so resented abroad. Its leaders are experts at the nuances of control and long on ambition. Under current President Xi Jinping, the CCP has strode boldly on the world stage. It has founded multilateral lending institutions, pushed the yuan into the IMF's currency basket, and poured money into overseas infrastructure under the Belt and Road Initiative. Back home, it's eliminated absolute poverty by its own measures, and it promises to be carbon neutral by 2060. But as our Hong Kong columnist Pete Sweeney tells Peter Thal Larson this week, the party is dangerously running short on new ideas. After that, I speak to Lauren Silva Laughlin in New York. She wrote a piece this week looking at how Wall Street banks are tapping into the little guys to better price initial public stock offerings. By allocating a slice of IPOs to individuals via the Robinhood and other apps, Goldman Sachs and others are hoping to capture yet another signal of demand that could help their customers avoid leaving money on the table when they go public. Give a listen. This week, it's 100 years since a group of intellectuals and activists met in Shanghai to found the Communist Party of China. From those humble beginnings, the party's grown, and of course, for the last seven decades, it's ruled over the People's Republic of China. I'm Peter Thalarsen in London. I'm joined by Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong. Hello, Pete. Hi, Peter. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, Pete, you this week you've written a piece for Breaking Views about the, the, the centenary of the Communist Party, taking stock of... Uh, of where things stands and also trying to look into the future. But just, you know, you've, you've been writing, living in and writing about China for a long time. How do you sort of think about this centenary? It's interesting to me personally, because I, I lived um, right around the corner from the building where the Communist Party had was founded. It's in uh, Shanghai's Xintiandi uh, district. And if Mao could see it today, Mao Zedong, he'd roll over in his grave. It's been rebuilt at this as, into this luxury shopping district designed by an American architect who used to be a fighter pilot, I think. And the whole thing is just is just swamped with the, the bourgeoisie. And in the middle of it is this house um, with a with a queue of people lining up to see see where the country got its start. You know, today obviously it's a very different place than it was then. But I mean, I think on balance, you know, Xinjiangdi and kind of the bustle is very much what the reformers who tried to undo Mao's work wanted wanted China to become. Yeah, no, that's right. And I guess uh, it's sort of a good metaphor, really, for everything that's happened. I want to dig a bit in this piece. You, you, you talk about the Communist Party, in your view, running low on creativity. I mean, I guess most people wouldn't necessarily have thought about the Communist Party in the past as being particularly creative. Um, can you just explain a bit more about what you mean by that? Well, yeah, I, I'm not talking about in the artistic sense, I guess. But um, you know, what we're talking about is policy, creativity, creative problem solving. I guess it's worth looking back at where China got started at the end of the Cultural Revolution with the death of Mao. The economy was in a total wreck, somewhat comparably to the Soviet Union, except probably much worse. Mao had collectivized agriculture; he'd set off these massive famines through poorly implemented policies. The Cultural Revolution 
had shut down universities and wasted a generation of people by intellectuals by sending them to, to farm, you know, and, and the government was confronted with this, this huge mess and they had to figure out how to sort it out. Now, I know there's a lot of people who, and they have a point, you know, they give credit to the Chinese, ordinary Chinese people, you know, who buckled down, you know, the government got out of their way and they buckled down and worked and they produced all this wealth. And now China is the world's second largest economy, a $15 trillion economy, and it's competing in trade and it's got, you know, innovation and, and all of that was thanks to to just kind of the private sector. And that is true to a certain extent. But I mean, the CCP does get some credit for managing the process. And it's worth looking at Russia, you know, where the government, you know, with some some rather idealistic advice from American advisors, you know, decided to took this policy called shock therapy, and where they just ripped all the command economy stuff out at once or tried to, and then implemented free markets. And it was a it was a train wreck for a while. And, you know, China looked at that and quite reasonably concluded that, you know, this is not what we want. And you look at what happened over the next decades and kind of the way they managed the pace, looking at these very distorted warp institutions that they needed to sort of gradually move into markets. You know, they had ministries that they had to turn into corporations. They had to turn stock markets back on, which had been deactivated. They had to figure out how to move all this property that the real estate property the government had and put it somehow into private hands. And they did it, you know, there were a lot of hiccups, political and economic. There was inflation problems. Um, they laid off 40 million SOE workers. That was a bit painful. But on balance, it got us to where they are today. But of course, you know, if the, the Mao era bred a sense of urgency and flexibility in the party, uh, today the success of the party appears to be, be brewing the opposite. Yeah, no, that's interesting because it definitely feels viewed from a distance. It definitely feels like sort of some of the celebrations of this centenary have a very sort of triumphal aspect to it, and obviously uh, uh, very much focused on on the the person of Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. I mean, I, I think one thing that's interesting about all of this is is you know in in the time that that you've been looking at and writing about China, and 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 I remember this too from when I was in Hong Kong. You know, there was a huge amount of discussion over the last say decade or so about China's economic growth, whether it could continue, whether it was unsustainable, to what extent, you know, the, the, the debt that had piled up in the banking system after 2008 and in the shadow banking system uh, after that, whether that was all going to unravel, whether these big state-owned enterprises were going to collapse. It feels a little bit like those concerns have, have come, have, have gone a bit to the background. I mean, is that because they've been resolved or is there just more optimism about about the, the 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 government's ability to deal with these problems well i mean it's important to note i think first that the government recognizes this unsustainability and they have publicly recognized in public the the, the nobody in the chinese government is saying we're we're over the hump and we we can stop reforming now and we can coast on the economic front i mean while they're certainly demanding more respect on the global stage in terms of diplomacy while they're throwing their weight around overseas. I mean, there's very few people who don't see the deep imbalances. So in terms of the debt problem, you know, this is a government that is engaged in a, a brutal attack on the on the shadow banking system, trying to root out systemic risks that have, have come from misallocated investment and misallocated capital. You know, right now they're trying to deflate yet another housing investment bubble, despite their best efforts. The stock markets have overheated in areas, so their IPO queue is being tightly managed. There's all sorts of areas where the government is still very much working to try and, and avoid the dreaded so-called middle income 
country trap, you know, which is still very much a risk. Um, China is not rich yet. The gap between the poor and the rich has the, has gotten wider, especially during the pandemic. That's happened in a lot of places, but in China, it's particularly stark. So they're trying. The, the problem is that like, and, and this triumphalism, this kind of shrill tone to the, the protestations of national glory might have something to do with the fact that they also know it's not working that well. Yes, well, I guess that's probably one of the risks, which I think you sort of hint at in your piece, is is, is that this that this then spills over into sort of aggressive nationalism and 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 maybe one way to distract people from the fact that things aren't going that well economically. And obviously, they had a COVID downturn like everybody else. To is to be more uh, be more muscular and more aggressive on the international stage. Yeah, I mean, I should qualify this. Like, so the the the, the CCP is at this point, you know, enjoys is pretty popular at home. I mean, sure, it censors the news and, and, and churns out a lot of propaganda. But the fact of the matter is they did pull the economy around after a single, um, you know, a single quarter of recession. They, the, the export sector has just been absolutely roaring. Um, they have the highest share of, of global exports since the U.S. In the, in the 70s, I believe. It's like 16 percent. You know that when Chinese people look at, at economic performance and and like social cohesion in the West, you know they feel pretty good about where their country is. So at the moment there is you know both the shrillness, but there's also a genuine sense that you know their model is working better than other people at the moment. But the problem is that of course you know the Chinese model is authoritarianism in general is is usually pretty good at emergencies. You know when you when you have a decisive government that can make hard decisions impacting billion, you know, over a billion people um, and just ram it through, you know, that makes things a bit easier. But that didn't solve any of the long-term stuff. I mean, we're already seeing some of the enthusiasm wear off. I mean, growth has slowed a bit. Um, you know, the housing bubble is, is an obvious issue that's bubbled up recently. You have the demographic report that came out that showed, you know, the Chinese efforts to, to revive its birth rate have totally failed raises the risk that this country will continue to get older before it gets rich. You know, while they got around this tough corner, like in a way, the pandemic played to the CCP's strengths, you know, just like cracking down, monitoring everybody, locking down whole apartment buildings, you know, just kind of isolating the country behind these borders. That was actually kind of easier for this political system to do, um, but it doesn't make the forward, the forward problems any, any easier to deal with. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, thanks. I think that's that's really interesting. I mean, I guess the, the, the big question uh, going forward is what happens in terms of the continued economic development, whether that can continue to be managed and and also what happens if there comes a point where the economy is no longer growing and people are no longer getting better off. Uh, yeah, I guess, well, I mean, I know, just one last point I just on that. I mean, my concern personally is is regarding the wealth gap that, that my fear that the elite is actually okay with the middle-income country trap. That this kind of lack of innovation, this unwillingness to discard old policies like, you know, the control on birth rates or, you know, the hukou system that restricts movement, is because the elite in Shanghai and Beijing are basically going to be okay in being, you know, the very wealthy people in a country where there's a lot of people who are a lot poorer than they are, um, because they can get cheap services, you know, cheap people to take care of their kids, um, you know, and and clean their dishes and stuff. And there is this sign of this kind of rising aristocratic elite that is doing just fine under the current system, you know, and is, is actually not that bothered if the rest of the country doesn't follow them wrong. And obviously, economically, that's terrible and, and increases the risk of a, 
you know, a debt crisis or whatever liquidity crisis that, that hurts everyone. But like you see all these areas of policy paralysis where the system has just been kind of looking at a problem straight in the face for 10 years and still seems unable to, to change things. And I mean, that, it's quite worrisome if it's not an accident, but it's actually kind of reflective that part of Chinese society, you know, doesn't want to change anymore. Yeah. Well, I guess that's uh, it's the problem that's not restricted to China. But um, I guess, not. you know, the, the, the question is whether whether the Chinese Communist Party can carry on for another hundred years. Um, that's probably uh, an anniversary that neither you or I will be around to see if it happens. But in the meantime, we'll be watching with interest. Thanks very much, Pete. Thanks, Peter. Lawrence Silva Laughlin, pretty interesting story you wrote about Clear Secure's IPO. What's interesting about it is that you wrote that that these guys on Wall Street, the underwriters, have basically enlisted the little guy to help them price this big IPO. Uh, explain a little bit about why this is what they're doing, and then why it's different. So. When Wall Street banks like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley underwrite an initial public offering, they go out to their largest clients and ask them if they want a piece of the steel. And usually that's, you know, funds like BlackRock and Fidelity, you know, huge institutional investors that control a lot of money. And they kind of do a negotiation about what that price should be and um, how much one or the other wants to buy. And then they put the you know stock out in the market and starts to trade. What happened over the last year is the retail investors have gotten so active through platforms like Robinhood that it became hard for the underwriters to try to determine how the stock was going to trade once it got into the aftermarket. So on a couple of deals like Snowflake, which Goldman Sachs ran, um, the stock surged in the in you know the day they started trading, and it left the impression and created a lot of buzz that the underwriters had mispriced the deal. And so left money on the table for their clients. Table, as they, as the, in Wall Street parlance. So meaning they could have actually, if they priced the, if they had priced the deal at 10, they could have actually priced it at 15 and, you know, gotten their clients 50% more, whatever. Right. right. So what they've done in this deal, and um, they did it in a, they've done it in another deal prior to this one was to say, all right, Robin Hood you have a good sense of what your clients, these sort of day traders, the Reddit crowd, like. So we're going to allocate to you a little portion of this deal, and then you're going to give us information about how many people are interested in buying it. And that's going to let us tell our client what we think will happen to the stock once it starts to trade. And it enables them to maybe price the stock a little bit higher if they think there's going to be a really popular offering. So in the case of Clear Secure, Goldman Sachs, as you said, the lead underwriter, along with J.P. Morgan, Allen & Cohen, Wells Fargo, they're giving about one, or allocating, I should say, about 1% of the total $455 million deal to Robinhood, which will then basically give in, you know, their retail investors a chance to buy them. That's kind of, I mean, that's, so that's, that gives you like a pricing signal more than anything. I mean, it's not 1%, it's not a big amount of money in the grand scheme of things, but it's the signal. Is that is that what they're keen on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, just pulled up Clear Secure trading today. It's up three, uh, 33%, you know, shooting up above its IPO price and its debut. Um, who knows? Maybe if maybe they had a good read on the stock and maybe they priced it a little bit higher. The stock could have been up 100% today had they not had that information. Right. We don't know exactly. No. We don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, what's the what's the downside to doing this? If you if is it is it is there a downside or is there expectations? Well, <laughs> or do you overprice based on what one percent of the allocation suggests? I mean, it not really. The one percent probably. It, you know, it's it's sort of an interesting dynamic between Wall Street and Main Street. Like as we've seen over the past you know, several months, six months or whatever, there's this populist movement among this crowd to sort of try to take down the hedge funds and complain that banks like Goldman Sachs have cornered the market. And so in some ways, you both are getting a benefit, right? Goldman gets to have a little bit of visibility. And actually, Robinhood traders get a crack at this deal. The, the sort of issue is that, like, this isn't necessarily what the market was meant to be. There's a speculative aspect to this. And the Wall Street underwriters are supposed to be the ones who are the check to the IPO process by whereby going back and forth to the market and setting a negotiated price with sophisticated investors like BlackRock. And what's going on now is they're saying, hey, there's some speculative traders over in this pocket and we want to get a sense of what they're going to do to the stock price. And that has, in many cases, absolutely nothing to do with the fundamental value of the stock. So you could argue that maybe it's it's good for one corner of capitalism in the sense that it's becoming more fair or fairer to re retail investors. On the other hand, you know, sort of those who believe in the Wall Street system and institution would say, look, it's actually this is actually not what the process was supposed to be. Right. Well, but it's another it's another example of how the process has shifted so much. You have everything. I mean, to, to private companies seeking capital have so many options in front of them. I mean, this is just one element in the more traditional IPO process, but you have direct listings, all these kinds of things. I guess it sort of only stands to reason that with a a platform like Robinhood, which has become so if if not popular, it's, it certainly has become noisy. <laughs> but uh, so what, now the, the other thing that's interesting is that Robinhood itself has plans to go public. So I guess we can pretty much expect that when they do get the uh, go ahead to do that, and I know there was some regulatory question around that, you'd expect that they'd also be trying to sell their own stock to their own customers. You would think, I mean, but it, that's, I think, what's going to be really fun to see about this. Like when rubber meets the road and Robinhood's own value depends on how its stock trades in the aftermarket, what does it actually think about the speculative traders that are on its own platform? Um, you know, one would think that they'll get a lot of support from those traders and so they would offer a much larger allocation than one percent that probably can happen but you know a lot of the um, insiders in these companies are locked up for a very long period of time and they're invested in stocks not being too overpriced in an ipo too um so you know it'll be a fun it will definitely be a fun ipo to watch all right well i i'm i'm sure it'll be more than one percent if they're if they're the goldman sachs is sure. allocated. i don't but know what course, do you think ken <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I imagine if, if Goldman's doing 1% for these companies like Figs and, and uh, Clear Secure, and they're not really in that business, they're going to want to, in some ways, it could be seen as a validation of the Robinhood platform. No? I agree. Yeah. Yes. But I'm sure it'll, everyone will just make lots of money forever because that's how the markets work, right? Right now, yeah. Nothing ever no goes losing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Lauren. Good story. Thank you. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner, in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. 
Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com.